Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Arthur Kleinman, author of The Soul of Care, The Moral Education of a Husband and a Doctor. Dr. Kleinman is one of the most renowned and influential scholars and writers on psychiatry, anthropology, global health, and cultural humanistic issues in medicine. Educated at Stanford University and Stanford Medical School, he has taught at Harvard for over 40 years, professor of psychiatry and of medical anthropology at Harvard Medical School, and at the Esther and Sidney Rabb Professor of Anthropology in Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences. He was the Fung Director of Harvard's Asia Center from 2008 to 2016. He is the author of six other books, including The Illness Narratives, Suffering, Healing, and the Human Condition, widely taught in medical schools. He is a member of the National Academy of Medicine and of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Kleinman is currently directing a project on social technology for global aging and elder care in China that involves faculty and students from six of Harvard schools, as well as a number of his former students who are professors in China. Arthur, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I want to say it's just a real honor to have you here. I consider you a rock star in the field, and you were a huge inspiration for me getting into the field to begin with, way back when, when I read Rethinking Psychiatry, which was one of your early books, and a lot of your writings. It got me very curious and interested in the field of the intersection of culture and psychology. And just to have you on the show is just having like a hero on the show for me. So I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you for saying those things. Well, so we're here to talk about your more recent book, The Soul of Care, The Moral Education of a Husband and a Doctor. And I want to dive into the meat of that book and the meaning of the book to you as we go on with the interview. Sure. To begin with, I would really love to just get a little bit of background from you about who you are as a person and a professional and kind of your career and personal trajectory so we get a better sense of who you are. Yeah, of course. Well, I'm a New Yorker. So even though I've been in, in Boston and in Cambridge, Massachusetts for almost a half a century, I grew up in New York and many of my interests are those that came out of being a New Yorker. I am a medical anthropologist, a physician, a psychiatrist. I've done a lot of my cross-cultural work in China, and I've been very deeply involved in what is now called the medical humanities, which is bringing humanities-style thinking, history, anthropology, literature, et cetera, to understanding illness and treatment. Since I've been a clinician for a large part of my life, though I retired now from it, my focus has always been on caregiving and thought I knew a lot about that from my research and uh, theorizing, but realized that I didn't know a hell of a lot about what really mattered for me when I took care of my 
late wife, Joan, for 10 years with her early onset Alzheimer's disease. And I was her family carer for 10 years and until she died from uh, that uh, awful disease. During that period, I learned a hell of a lot about caregiving. That's why I wrote the book, The Soul, the Soul of Care. You know, my own biography recognizes that when I was young, I didn't really understand care. I came out of a well-to-do New York family. Uh, it's a family that had maids the 1940s. I was raised in a kind of wantonly careless manner. Others picked up things that I dropped. Uh, I didn't know how to make my bed center until I was about 12. Little was demanded of me in the way of responsibility for caring. And of course, caring means not just giving care, but actually worrying, thinking and planning and and then doing. And so I wasn't raised with any of that. And I learned it in a variety of ways. One, largely from my late wife, Joan Kleinman, who was uh, remarkable in giving care to me and my adult children now and when they were young and our um, friends and community. She was just a careful, caring person who took care of me for the first 36 years of a 46 year marriage. And then I took care of her for the last 10 years. So I learned it from her. I learned it from my patients, uh, the best of whom in terms of outcome taught me um, that care is reciprocal and it's not just one-sided giving, but it's a reciprocity. I had many patients. And I learned it from my research on patient experiences. Much of my career has been taken up with the phenomenology, if you will, of patients and their families. That is, what, what is illness? How is it lived? What is treatment? How is it lived? All those things were central to my work. So in uh, my, my first book, Patients and Healers in the Context of Culture, was about that. And then I wrote a popular book, The Illness Narratives, way back in 1988. You know, now there are plenty of books written about narratives, but that was really one of the first books written about illness narratives. Mm-hmm. And using illness narratives to understand what was at stake for patients and families in the illness and the care. From that book, I went on to all kinds of uh, research relating to people's experiences of uh, suffering, whether um, from a medical illness or from everyday social life, like poverty mm-hmm. or um, disasters like China's culture revolution. And in studying these things, I learned how people survive, how they endure. And a lot of that is about care. So those plus my, this very practical experience of taking care 
of my wife for 10 years. And I mean taking care of her so that with her Alzheimer's started in her occipital lobes of the brain, which is the place where we interpret images. So she was functionally blind for much of that time, as well as suffering from dementia. You know, I took care of her in ways that I never imagined I would be able to do, such as um, bathing her, um, toileting, feeding, ambulating. At the end, I did virtually everything. And then when she became too physically impaired by end-stage Alzheimer's and was on her way to her last few months, I uh, arranged for her to be in a nursing home because I couldn't do all the things that a nursing home at the end can do. Uh, lifting her had become a bit of a problem for me. Mm -hmm. You know, in that nursing home, I was there with her every day. I provided round-the-clock nursing care. At the end of that period of months, we had a death vigil for her. And so what I learned from all of that could be stated the following way, that care is first about relationships. And the quality of the relationship you have has a lot to do with the quality of care that's going to be given. Hmm. Well, sure, there are people who rise above troubled relationships and commit themselves to giving high quality care. But most of the time, if you have a broken relationship, you're going to have broken care. Mm. And that means that some people will refuse to give family care because they feel the person who requires it is not someone they respect or has respected them. Yeah, sure. You mentioned several examples of that in your book of people you had come across, patients who were in a situation where they needed to do caregiving and were very resentful and upset about that because the quality of that relationship yeah. was not good during the course of their life. Whereas, of course, your love and compassion for Joan was amazing. And I'm sure in a large part because she was so kind and loving to you during the course of your marriage. Right. So, so that's it. That's, that's reciprocity. So that, that back and forth, if you think of a marriage as the arc of a set of relations between people, and you think of a family in the same way, just more people involved, then um, care is reciprocal through, throughout marriage, throughout the building of a family, you are both giving and receiving care. When someone is sick, when kids are small and need to be really taken care of, um, when accidents happen, there's trauma, when there's uh, um, COVID, et cetera. All those things uh, add up to opportunities or burdens of care. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's important. The, that whether care is an opportunity to express love or a burden that's resented. In the course of long-term care, like I, 10 years of taking care of someone with Alzheimer's, it's a long period of time. Yeah. Everyone gets frustrated. 
But if you have a strong relationship, that love carries you through the frustrations. And there are many. There are many frustrations. Mm -hmm. If you have a difficult relationship, it makes it harder. And of course, crucial to this are resources. First, financial resources. Care can be very expensive. Alzheimer's is the most expensive disease in our healthcare system. Alzheimer's produ routinely produces bankruptcy in families okay, because it is so expensive. Well, uh, I had the, the financial resources. If you don't have the financial resources, you're, you're in a much more vulnerable situation to have uh, problems with care. I had the financial resources, thank God. And secondly, I had the cognitive resources. Care is about knowledge, about knowledge of how you get help for certain things, where you go to, uh, to get that help. Um, it's about uh, knowledge of the uh, progression of an illness, knowledge of treatments. In Alzheimer's, of course, even till today, there are no treatments really that are effective, but there are plenty of treatments that are presented to you as something you should try. And the knowledge of when to try something and when to say, no, that's a really important resource. So I had the medical knowledge, being a physician myself. I had the academic knowledge of the research. So I didn't have the wool pull over my eyes by all the claims that are made for medications. I knew mm -hmm. that the medications have modest or any effect on the progression of the disorder. I didn't expect much from the medications. But when my wife became not, suffered not only dementia, but agitation, which is a big part of the end stage of dementia, knowledge of the relevant psychiatric medications that ameliorated her behavior somewhat. And when she became so angry and frustrated as anyone would with this terrible disease. Yeah. I had knowledge of, and I had the, the connections to be helped. So that's a big deal. That's a big part of it. Part of the book is pointing out that even with those connections, even with that knowledge, so broken is our healthcare system, so chaotic, so lacking in warmth, personal warmth, presence, and um, empathy that um, I, even I had difficulty with it with all the uh, connections I had. So you know, I've been at Harvard for 40 years. I knew everyone in the, on the medical side or just about. My friends were some of the leading neurologists who was specialized in this disorder. And yet what I found was that once they had made the diagnosis, and that was an enormous help because it was so confusing at the beginning, but once they had made diagnosis, they kind of lost interest. And also they didn't have much to add. And that was sad because if you think of neurologists, they're the ones who treat patients who, and families with a patient with stroke. Yeah. neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, ALS, other neurodegenerative disorders, multiple sclerosis, etc. 
they're the ones who treat um, conditions that require a tremendous amount from family members in giving care. And yet they're not interested in that. Their interest, and I think it's the interest of most of the field, is focused on the diagnosis, which is important, and the limited treatments they have, but doesn't extend to the aftercare, which is really what these disorders are about. In Alzheimer's, where you don't know the cause, uh, you don't have the medications, there probably are a dozen different syndromes under one name. Cares everything. So that, that was discouraging for me. That was a very discouraging um, aspect of things. I came to realize that the medical system was broken when it came to care. Yeah. I, I want to follow up with some questions about your observations of the medical system in a moment um, in what you're talking yeah. about. But just to back up for a moment here, in your situation, your ability to provide care in many ways was ideal. You had the financial resources, you had connections to the community, right. you had a wife who you just adored and wanted to be there for her. And you talk a little bit about in your book, quite a bit about this idea of, you know, it just gets so hard to see your loved one in such a difficult position as the dementia progresses. Yeah. And I mean, it's sort of heart-wrenching reading about what Joan was like, especially toward the ends of her illness when she, you know, she had Copgrass syndrome, which is thinking her husband was an imposter and right. yelling at you for that and throwing these tantrums and fits and being unable to calm her. And I, I guess the question that people would have who haven't gone through that is, how do you manage as an individual? What, what needs to happen for you to keep yeah. going to care for somebody when it's so difficult like that. Yeah, well, you, you get it. See, you get it. A lot of people don't get that. That is the question. Well, you need all the help you can get. So I had uh, a wonderful home health aid. I had the finances to afford a home health aid who could work, as she put it, nine to five. And then I worked five to nine and, and during the weekdays. Mm -hmm. She worked from eight, from nine in the morning till five in the afternoon. I worked from five in the afternoon till nine in the morning. And, and then I worked on the weekends. But that was enormous help. That allowed me to continue to go to work, uh, have an income, and, uh, and also keep myself going. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's very important for a family carer to have things that keep you going. So home health aid. I had a, a, a substantial house with a garden that made it possible for Joan to be at home uh, a fair amount of the time. I had friends who were, some of them, not all of them, but some of whom were very supportive and helpful. And the local community that I lived in, which I had lived in for a long time, really gave assistance. So that, for example, when Joan went with our home health aid or with me to the bank or to a store. We have a little community where I live called Huron Village in, in Cambridge. And uh, we've lived here for so long, people knew Joan so well, that even though she became cognitively um, 
inadequate to, to complete things like uh, a banking engagement, having to take something out of the bank or put something in. They helped her with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember that the, at the, our local Whole Foods, the cashiers who knew her very well, uh, most of whom actually were um, uh, from Islamic countries and wore headdresses, they um, went out of their way to calm her and help her. She would get upset by, sometimes by, for example, once I remember the color of the receipt that we were given mm. with her was something that surprised her. And she thought there was something odd going strange going on, you know, rather than uh, participate in a worsening situation or make the situation worse. Uh, these local people contributed to making it calmer, better. And, you know, that was no small thing. And as I said, I had the resources to understand what was happening so that at the beginning of things, I I realized that this was a progressive disease and that where I was getting comfortable at a level of taking care of her would only last for a few weeks or months at the most. And then she was gonna slip to another level and had to start all over learning how to deal with things. So, you know, for example, at the beginning, when Joan had to be bathed or bathe herself, I just accompanied her into the into the bathroom and held things for her and helped her do it. But at the end, I had to do everything. Okay, and so yeah. you you slip. It's like a a slope that you're going down, and you're hoping that the angle of descent is not too sharp. Yeah, because maybe then you'll fall down. And that's one thing that I think is really important for caregiving for a disorder, a progressive disorder like Alzheimer's. This is different kind of caregiving than caregiving when you have a little baby or child. You know that everything is going to become more independent over time. It may take years to get there, but eventually with a baby, you're going to have a toddler. And for a toddler, you're going to have a, a youngster. That very hopeful movement yeah. is just reversed in a disorder like Alzheimer's um, or any uh, progressive end-of-life disorder. It's going to go down and and ultimately take your life. Yeah. So I had that. I knew that. I had that recognition. I knew we would end with hospice. I knew that death. We would have to deal with death at the end. The, all of those things gave me an advantage. I think that if you're coming into this and you don't have much experience in the health domain, you really have to learn fast about what, how it progresses. And the way the disease is described by professionals, in my view, is not a very useful way. It's, prescribed, it's described in terms of uh, very large block statements, early Alzheimer's, middle Alzheimer's late Alzheimer's, or mild, moderate, severe. They're too crude. They're too crude and, and they're not helpful. What you need is to have for each stage to have the issues for family care laid out. What are those issues? So in early, onset, in early 
Alzheimer's, especially in early onset Alzheimer's, because these are people who are not in their 80s, but in their 50s or even 40s. Joan was in her late 50s when this started. Part of the problem is denial. That is, people with the early signs of cognitive decline, especially at a young age, they're in a kind of physiological denial. It's not even a psychological denial. It's the brain itself denying that there's a problem. And that's very difficult to deal with because that means that people will say, well, I'm not, I'm not as bad as you think I am, you know? And that's where, you know, things happen where someone has to stop driving, which is a big deal in the United States. Just as big, someone has to stop going to work. My, my wife was a great researcher. Someone ultimately is gonna lose their skills at their, what you might call hobbies, or for Joan, they really were her life. Painting in the Chinese style, calligraphy, all those things were gonna go, and, and they went. Um, so in the early stages, um, it's a series of, of losses that you're dealing with. In the middle stages, it's um, the intersection of cognitive decline and behavioral change. And increasingly, the behaviors become more difficult. You mentioned Capgras syndrome. That's a really tough one. Because in Capgras syndrome, not just you, but the environment seems like it's phony, mm. fake to the person. It's a delusion about the setting that leads you to believe that this is not real. This setting's not real. This is not my husband. This is not my home, etc. That can be very, very disruptive. Uh, other delusions that are there, you know, you get a paranoid period of suspicions in Alzheimer's. So someone can't work through the different sensory information that comes in and make a clear decision or understand things clearly. The, um, all of that leads to uh, paranoia, suspicions. Later on, as you get to, you know, more advanced Alzheimer's, agitation, you know, agitation, real agitation. I mean, you know, someone who's so agitated, they can't sit down, mm. they can't stop trembling, they can't stop, stop to think or to respond. Agitation so bad that an individual becomes, uh, develops a kind of delirium and um, uh, becomes wild throwing things, uh, just in a delirious state. If we had a careful handbook, easy to read handbook for conditions like this, set out for the family, I think it would define problems at different stages and suggest solutions, okay? Mm -hmm. Suggest solutions, because so important is context here, relationships, um, income, support system, et cetera. You can't universalize. It has to be more specific. But that I found the absence of that difficult to deal with because you would have liked to know what you should prepare yourself for. So you end up reading memoirs of people who went through Alzheimer's or family members who took care of Alzheimer's. And that's, that's interesting, but it's got to be brought together in some way that makes it useful to you. Mm -hmm. And that's what I try to do in the book, by identifying relationships, presence, 
as key elements of this. Relationships meaning reciprocity. It's so easy when we think of relationships only to think about the caregiver. As you watch the Alzheimer's patient begin to disappear, as it were. They speak less, they respond less, but they are there and your interaction with them is reciprocal. Okay? And so emphasizing that reciprocity, very important. Mm -hmm. Presence, you're being there just the way I am with you now in an intense way meant to convey some feelings, some ideas, and not mechanical, okay? But in, if, if when you go into the hospital, frequently what you discover in the hospital and the clinic is a very mechanical way of dealing with patients and family members. At the beginning, one of the problems is, how do you include the family member, given our tremendous emphasis in the United States on the autonomy of the person, in this case, then the autonomy of the patient, when do you start including the family member? Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly by the time the patient can't respond, the family member's gotta be included, but there's a long period of time where decisions have to be made about guardianship, about health proxies, about not driving, any longer about having a spouse or a family member having power of attorney so that there is access to uh, someone's funds that can be used uh, in this regard when, when, when the person involved can no longer write a check or can't think about, can't remember what bank they're involved in. Okay. So all these things I think are what I call you know, sort of the frustration, daily frustrations that require you to be present, but where increasingly you begin to feel like maybe you can't be present all the time. Hmm. And so it's, I think what brings the presence out is the relationship. That relationship, if that's based in love, it's that person who's sick, who's bringing out of you the presence, your presence. And they're bringing their presence to this to the best that they can. Second, you know, the third thing is rituals. Rituals are very important, rituals and habits. You're gonna get through 10 years of caregiving. Everything cannot be spontaneous or just done in a moment's whim or um, uh, uh, sort of forgotten about now, but picked up later. You wanna organize each day so that it becomes easier to get through. And those are rituals. So you go through a kind of ritualized organization to how you do things like bathe someone or cook a breakfast and help someone eat it or go for a walk together. All of that becomes ritualized and that helps you get through days. And then, you know, there's, there's the um, enduring. I think that this is also an something that most Americans do not experience. Fortunately, we've had so many things that have helped us in life that if you're in a middle class in America, you don't think about just enduring something. You think about doing well, having a great time, the beauty of things, the aesthetic pleasure. But if you're poor, if you're marginal, if you're really sick, if you have Alzheimer's and you're a family caregiver, 
you realize you've got to learn how to endure, just like the patient is going to endure this terrible disease. So does the family member. And for care to occur, you've got to endure pressures and difficulties. You know, and these are very pragmatic. So I remember a number of times where I just wasn't sure I could endure anymore. Mm. I remember Joan, who was such a beautiful woman, so private, so discreet, so careful in herself, when she began to lose continence of urine and, and feces, mm. um, it was so troubling to me. I wasn't sure that I could take care of her anymore with that. And, yeah. and I learned I could. And I learned I could because she helped me learn that. I remember when first time that she lost control of her bowels and there was feces all over the floor and I started to cry. Mm. She said, you can do it, Arthur. You can do it. Just let clean it up now. And that's what I did. I cleaned wow. it up and, um, and endured it. And I, th I think that, that endurance means something's got to keep you going. You've got to feel you can keep going. And that means you got to take care of yourself. That's what the home health aid did for me. It gave me time to be away from it, to re recharge my batteries, to get my mind in another place, and then to come and take, take care of things. That's what family support did for my daughter and son, adult daughter and son, who were just fantastic in this. Even my mother was very, very helpful in this care of, of Joan. So that's what keeps you going. And, you know, for others, it's, it's a religious, spiritual commitment. For me, it was a kind of moral commitment to know that it was there to do, and I was responsible to do it. I once wrote the foreword to a book called The Caregiver, uh, written by E.S. Goldman, who was a, um, a writer for The New Yorker. And under the name Aaron Altera, he published this book, The Caregiver, talking about taking care of his wife with Alzheimer's. And because the book was well-received and there was a reading from the book at a bookstore in Cambridge. And because I had written a foreword, I was asked to come and comment as well. And here was this uh, man, the author, who was well in his 80s at that time, maybe 87, 88, had to use a walker, but completely complete clear in his mind, talking about this book and what caring for his wife had been about. And also there's a question from the audience. A young woman, clearly, who had never had, had an experience like this, said, well, why did you do it? Why did you do all these things? And I could see, standing very close to uh, this great writer, Mr. Goldman, that he was stunned by the question. He was absolutely stunned by the question. And at first, he asked her to you know, clarify it, because he didn't understand it. And she said, well, you didn't have to do all these things, you know. Why did you do it? How did you do it? And he said, well, it was there to do. It had to be done, you know. And he thought for a minute, and then he said, it was the vows, the marriage vows. It was 
It was the quality of the relationship. Uh, what was I to do other than this? This is what I was there for, to, to do it. Had to be done. I just liked that very much because I felt that's, that was my answer. That's what I said. That why did you do this? Because it was there to do. I love Joan. I wanted to give her the best of care. It was there to do. I never thought about it. I just did it. And you're a caregiver while you're doing it. But I don't want to romanticize care because I, I think people have to just understand that you can do it, but it's difficult to do. It's financially difficult. It's emotionally difficult. It's physically difficult to do, okay? But it needs to be done. And I think that's the world I came out of. And that's the world I hope we're still in where people make moral commitments to each other to be there in good times and bad times, to share and to let their love lead them to places where they never imagined they would be. Yeah, you make that point in your book in several occasions. And I thought that was a very important point because I think many people who have never been in that position before, it's hard for them to imagine how could somebody adore, endure, and rise to the occasion of taking care of somebody. And I guess when somebody is in that situation, they just do it. They just do it. You know, there wasn't a lot of thought about whether they can or can't do it. It's just your call to rise to that occasion and you do Do it. it. You do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you think of um, uh, more broadly of catastrophes, uh, because this is a catastrophe, uh, Alzheimer's is a catastrophe. Yeah. It's the same as uh, why do people in a fire come out and try to help other people? There's a catastrophe. Something has to be done. You can't just stand there. That's one, that's the moral commitment that you're going to do something. I've always believed, and it's central to my teaching and my research and my writing, that. Providing care, doing good in the world, is a way of doing good in the world. Mm-hmm. And that we're here to do good in the world. No matter what your job is, no matter what your education, what your income, there are ways that you can do good in the world. And we all know that. And, when, and I think that care gives you a great sense that you're doing something important, significant. Now, does that, is that always enough to keep you going? No. You can be first so frustrated, et cetera. Now, this is what you see translates from the family care to physicians and nurses. So more than 50% of physicians in America who are in primary care and nurses in the same place more than 50% have the symptoms of burnout. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why do they burn out? A lot of people have asked me, why do they burn out? I think they burn out because they're alienated in healthcare systems that don't allow them to do the caregiving that they want to do, that make them see patients very quickly and just prescribe a drug here or there, but not really do the care for patients that are in systems and when they do give good care, they don't get rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. They're not recognized, et cetera. You know, when I started medical school in 1962, 
you really did feel that medicine was a special kind of practice. And now that I'm finishing up, I'll retire in, in a couple of years. I'm 81 years of age now. The practice of medicine is more like a worker on the factory floor. So one of the things that's happened is that the profession has lost its, its autonomy, lost its, its ability to articulate care as a central virtue of the practitioner, and instead has to use the same economic language that everything else is put in, in our society. And that language leads to a kind of indifference of people who are in institutional settings, who basically have become in the health system bureaucrats. Even though they're doctors, they're bureaucrats. They're, mm -hmm. they're part of a huge organization. Um, they are treated as if they are simply employees. They lose the sense of medicine as a profession committed to healing, committed to, to doing the best you can for patients. And, they, and I think under that, nonetheless, they struggle. 90% of doctors, I'm convinced, struggle to give the very best of care. Mm -hmm. They burn out when they realize they simply can't do it because the system has been set up not to provide high quality care, but simply to provide efficiency, institutional efficiency. In fact, that's how we measure care. We have no direct measures of care in the healthcare system. What we measure is the efficiency of the hospital, of the clinic, of the healthcare plan. That is not care, okay? Yeah. In order to measure care, you have to measure what I've been talking about, quality of relationship, quality of communication, time spent, how you listen, how you respond, what you do, et cetera. We don't measure any of those things. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that I really enjoyed the part of the your book where you were talking about your early experiences as, I guess, as a medical student or, or, or even as a resident, where you were doing the home visits, you were spending the time to really hear the story of the patient and see yes. the environment where they were living. And you began to understand the importance of learning about and understanding the patient in a broader context and just seeing a patient for, you know, three minutes, diagnosing them and sending them on their way, right. discards so much important information. There's one story you said that was, I think, a perfect highlight of it. You, you were talking about a woman who had some kind of a medical condition where she, I can't remember exactly what was happening, but she was maybe having bladder infections or kidney infections or something. She wouldn't urinate because the urinating would be losing water and she was being pulled. No, no, was, it was the other. Let, let, let me tell you what it was. Yeah. This was a woman. This, yeah, this was very interesting. I, I did my residency at the Masters General Hospital. This was at the Masters General Hospital in the early 70s. This was a woman who was the wife and daughter of plumbers. She was not well educated herself. She had congestive heart failure. And she was told by the doctors that she had too much water, that her, her heart was failing and she has too much water in her body 
and she had to get rid of that water. I see, yes. That's how they were de de describing the failing heart, the hypertension that she had, the salt retention, et cetera. And so um, she was doing everything she could to get rid of that water. She was vomiting, she was urinating even in the bed, and they thought she was psychotic. Right. They thought she was, because no one had spoken to her and simply asked her, why are you doing this? Okay. Yeah. She would have told them. She was, you know, very articulate in that way, even though that she didn't understand the physiology of things. That's a mixed bag. So the situation today is much better than the standpoint of patients. We have a, patients and families are much better educated about the body, about medicine, about health. There's a more democratized element to healthcare where the voices of patients are are being encouraged and heard, but still the structures of care emphasize this efficiency. And if we're honest, it's, it's not just any efficiency. It's that all the healthcare system, including the huge number of hospitals, which are supposed to be quote unquote, nonprofit are not nonprofit. In effect, when you look at what they do, they generate surpluses, they generate income, okay? They make money, right? And I think that that's one of the things that's very problematic in a capitalist society. Yeah. Can you have a good system that gives care when the system turns on making money? I don't think so. I think that um, care sometimes is very costly. You're not going to make money off of it. And there's something more important than making money in life, in my view, it should be for doctors, and that is giving good care yeah. and for family members. You know, part of our problem is the nature of the kind of capitalism we have in America as opposed to, say, in Japan or the Netherlands or Germany or all of Scandinavia, from Finland to Denmark. They have national healthcare systems that for a problem like Alzheimer's, they provide you with long-term care insurance. You get a home health aid, okay? I had to pay for that home health aid. I had the resources to pay that. Most Americans, I think, don't have the resources for that. Yeah. And our, we don't, and our system doesn't help them in that regard. You need, you know, you need a system that has long-term Health insurance, most Americans do not have long-term health insurance. Mm -hmm. When they get to problems like Alzheimer's at end of life, they're gonna have real problems at that stage, problems affording things. We take for granted that this should be the responsibility of the families. But I believe this is the responsibility in part of the state. Mm -hmm. The government uh, should have responsibility for this especially for the uneven playing field that we start with. In health, we have a greatly uneven playing field. In my view, that is this central ethical problem in our system, which is that we have people in our system who are, are poor, very poor, who are marginal, who've been discriminated against, who have, have no resources, you can't simply have a, a situation like that without 
prioritizing them. They need to be prioritized. This is my late, my former student who just died, Paul Farmer, who was a great medical humanitarian, an icon of global health. This is what he said, the prioritization of patient, of the poor patient should come first. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't, have, we don't live in a system like that. So not being in that kind of system, a lot of people are not going to get much help. And not only are they not going to get much help, they haven't accrued much wealth to begin with. They're not given good health insurance, if any health insurance. They're going to have a, a member getting a disastrous disease, a catastrophic disease that requires resources. And this produces, I think, in a setting of poverty, this makes poverty bite even much harder. It's what grinds people. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I, I think that um, uh, I was enormously privileged to give care. I am enormously privileged. What our system should be concerned with is those who are, have, are unprivileged, who don't have the resources. Who, and if you don't have the resources, how in the world can you give the care? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, the care, especially for a long-term illness such as uh, dementia, requires so many more elements than just writing a script and taking the medication, because the care requires, it can become 24-7 care on so many different levels, and that's just not acknowledged. Uh, the, the so, look what, so look where that leads. So that, that leads to the fact that nursing homes are ultimately paid for by Medicaid. So if you're an elderly person and you've spent down your resources, all your resources, then Medicaid will pay for a nursing home. But what kind of a nursing home will it pay for? It'll pay for a nursing home that your family and you would never want to be in. Yeah. By and large, a nursing home where you don't even have to open your eyes when you walk in. You just smell the urine that's over places. A nursing home where there are insufficient numbers of health aides helping people, yeah. not enough nurses, hardly any doctors. Yeah, you described in your book visiting many of those and how demoralizing yeah. it was to see it. And these are the places under COVID where people have, uh, at the beginning of our pandemic, just died it, you know, in, in large numbers, yeah. um, not surprisingly. You know, care may start with the issue of, well, Alzheimer's or end-stage cancer or heart failure. But ultimately, as you take the subject seriously, it brings into account just how we live our lives and the structure of our society. Um, that's what's so interesting about it. And once you see things from that perspective, and that is, uh, I'm an anthropologist as well as a physician, that's how I see things. Once you see things from that perspective, then you are really attracted to the immense health and social inequalities mm -hmm. in our society. And wonder, I wonder, I have no idea how a poor family takes care of a family member with Alzheimer's in our society. Yeah. Arthur, I wanted to ask you one last question here, yeah. kind of bringing it back to the personal again. Yeah. yeah. And um, this sort of 
existential idea of meaning and purpose that caregiving can bring to a person. You talk a bit about that, especially toward the end of the soul of care. And in what ways do you think you or other people might grow and derive meaning in their lives existentially from going through an experience like what you have? Yeah. Okay. So there was a report about five or six years ago by the National Academy of Medicine called Families Caring for an Aging America. And in that report, they showed the evidence that if you're a family caregiver, you're under such stress and for serious illness that you're likely to have um, disorders you might not have had if you had not been under that pressure. Hmm. And you're likely to die earlier than those of your friends who don't have that kind of burden. But they showed something else as well, that you're also more likely to have worked out what the purpose of your life is and your role as a caregiver and have a, a sense of meaningful aging, that there's meaning in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Because I think care provides that meaning. It's what we're here for. You come to realize that Care is the glue that holds our society together. If we didn't have it, if we were all wantonly careless, we wouldn't have a society, okay? And you realize in your own life that this is your opportunity to do good in the world and to help someone you love. And I think that's, when it comes down to it, At the end, where do we get our meanings from? Well, we get our meanings from our religious background, from the moral commitments of our group, et cetera, the the local worlds we live in. But ultimately, in our individual lives, we work out meaning with respect to those around us and ourselves. And care is central to that. I think care is what gives meaning to people's lives. Now, it's not the only thing that gives meaning to people's lives, but it's an enormously important thing that gives meaning to people's lives. If I were back in the same situation, knowing what I know now, would I have done the same thing? Absolutely, I would have done the same thing. Even though it produced days and nights that were so difficult and painful and so much sorrow and difficulty, frustration. I would have done the same thing over again. And I think I would have done it just the way that we talked about it earlier, as something there that needed to be done and you just do it, okay? Yeah. And later on, you make kind of sense of it. But while you're doing it, there's something in you vital that energizes you, that keeps you going. And I think ultimately that's the embodied recognition of purpose, that there's a purpose in living, that we're not just thrown here in the world without any significance, and that that purpose is around caring for things that matter. Now, here I mean something broader than just 
caring for another person. I think we see this in the way people care for their gardens, care for their pets, care for their hobbies, care for their work. I think that, you know, Freud said work and love were the two things that keep you going. Well, I think, I think love is one of the things that keep you going, but it can be any kind of care that keeps you going. And I think that's uh, not a bad way to, to end up in life, to have a sense that you put your effort into caring for someone who you love. I look back on my career, I've had all the honors, all the prizes. I've, I've had every advantage. I think that difficult time for me was the most important part time in my life. Well, it really shows in your writing, Arthur. It was such a moving read. And I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts and your sort of stream of consciousness about the experience that you had with Joan and then also weaving in some of the broader, you know, political and social thoughts about it, putting it in perspective. Yeah. But it was just uh, really a beautiful and wonderful read. So I thank you for that. Well, thanks for the interview and my chance to you know, explicate the book. And I hope people who listen will, will read the book. And especially, I think, people who are faced what, with what I was faced with. I hope they'll read the book because, in a way, that's the book I wanted and needed when I started. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, Arthur. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and keep up all the amazing work that you do. All the best to you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.